I do know as a historian of American religion, sociologist of American religion, that I, I guess I get some consolation that religious communities had to go through this before, that they were able to respond with kindness and with a sense of duty and responsibility and the common good, and that those things can help carry us through this time too. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. This episode is also brought to you by the 2020 ChurchNet Spring Gathering, now a virtual event due to coronavirus. Join ChurchNet online on April 24th for their spring gathering, Hope Overflowing, based on Romans 15.3. Keynote speaker will be Paul Masisa, president of the Baptist World Alliance and a pastor in South Africa. Also be reports on missions efforts in Guatemala and Cuba and how you can connect and get involved. Find out more information at churchnet.org and then join them online April 24th. Hope overflowing. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with John Schmaltzbauer. He's a professor and the Blanche Gorman Strong Chair in Protestant Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. As a sociologist and historian of religion in America, particularly in the Ozarks region, John has a lot of things that he could talk about, but this interview we're going to particularly focus on something that's relevant to what we're going through right now with the coronavirus pandemic, particularly as churches are finding themselves either voluntarily or sometimes by bans from state or local officials unable to meet in person right now. And while this seems very unusual to us, it seems unprecedented, John's going to remind us that it's actually not. Our churches, our religious institutions have been through this before during the 1918 influenza pandemic. And so it's really fascinating some of the historical nuggets that he's been digging up in Word and Way and in other newspapers. And so I'm really excited I had a chance to have this conversation with John so he could share with you some of the stuff that he's been finding so that we can learn from history and learn about how our churches went through this type of event before and survived. So here's my interview with John Schmulzbauer of Missouri State University. All right, well, John, thanks for joining us on the program. Happy to be here, even though it's kind of uh, somber circumstances in our world. I really appreciate the work you do here. Well, well, thanks. We have connected over social media, and we're looking at each other at a socially safe distance on our computer screens here, uh, because as, as you said, this is a, an odd time. But before we get into talking about some of the stuff that's, that you and I have interacted with related to coronavirus, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, your area of study, and maybe a little bit of what you at least were teaching before everything got a little crazy here at Missouri State? Uh, yeah, um, I'm actually a sociologist of religion. 
my training was in the sociology of religion uh, in the Department of Sociology at Princeton University, but I've always been interested in American religious history, too. My undergraduate studies were at Wheaton College in Illinois, where some of my teachers were people like Mark Knoll and Edith Blumhofer, who just passed away, Joel Carpenter and others who have studied the history of American evangelicalism and other religious movements uh, like Pentecostalism. And so I've always been interested in the history of religion in America, too. And I think I probably could get counseling for a confused disciplinary identity because the field of American religion is broadly interdisciplinary. There are sociologists, there's political scientists, there's historians. In fact, my undergraduate uh, advisor, Lyman Kalstead, is a political scientist who studied religion and voting and things like that, using large surveys, uh, you know, trying to figure out what difference does religion make in voting? And at that time, other political scientists said, that's crazy. You know, people vote on the basis of their pocketbook. And I don't think you have to make the case anymore that, you know, to understand somebody's voting choice, you probably need to look at a whole set of social and demographic variables and religions in the mix for sure. So those are some of the things I've worked on. And yeah, uh, more recently, studies of religion in American higher education. So, you know, what is the state of uh, religion on campus? So just published a book in 2018 with a colleague who's a historian, called The Resilience of Religion in American Higher Education with a, a good Baptist uh, press, uh, Baylor University Press, down in Waco. So our books are on the Brazos River, I guess, or maybe in the Brazos River by now. <laughs> and uh, I'm also interested in my teaching in Religion in the Ozarks. been able to offer several courses on religion and region. Uh, an Ozarks religion class, a course uh, called Bible Belt Religion which we offered a couple different times, sort of looking at a, a broader region of the sort of the South and whatever the Ozarks are, which I think you would say the Ozarks aren't quite in the South, but they're kind of their own thing in a way, too. Brooks Blevins, my colleague in Missouri State, is sort of the leading Ozarkologist, and I think he has a, a good point that Southern Missouri, it's hard to place regionally. So I've been interested in Missouri history Ozark's history and things like that, too. And then getting into um, religion and health, our department has put seven courses plus uh, an internship course together for health professions people and our own religious studies majors on religion, spirituality, and health, because we just felt like practitioners need to understand the faith backgrounds of people, whether they're uh, from a different backgrounds than the health provider, or, you know, just to understand the religious context of the facilities they work in. Say they go work for Mercy. It's good to understand the history of Catholic hospitals in the United States. So that's gotten me interested in the history of religion and health in this area. You know, down in Springfield, we have two hospital systems, Cox and Mercy, and they both go back to women of faith, Sisters of Mercy, starting uh, St. John's Hospital in the 1890s, with very crude facilities, a chicken coop for a stretcher, operating in a little house with a makeshift chapel. Uh, but one of the first things they did is respond to uh, an epidemic and go live in what was called a pest camp where people were quarantined. And then across town, Cox Hospital used to be called Burge Deaconess and later Burge Protestant Hospital before Lester Cox really helped it get on a sound financial footing. And that comes out of uh, the Methodist laywoman, Ellen Burge, who uh, 
enlisted people who were in the Deaconess movement, which was kind of a movement of, they're kind of like Protestant uh, women religious, Protestant nuns, although it was a little bit different than that, 19th century movement. And so there's this rich history of religion and healthcare in the show me state. Yeah, I love the idea of the interdisciplinary nature of some of your, your work. All of these things connect. So my graduate work at the University of Missouri was in officially in political communication, but I was studying religion and politics. And so some of the some of the things that you were just talking about resonate. And there's a lot, you can't separate these disciplines as easily as we try to in the academy sometimes. Yeah, and Mizzou had some wonderful religion and journalism initiatives that uh, Deborah Mason uh, yeah. took the lead on, really a national contribution to the conversation about religion in the media, and a strong religious studies department in Mizzou, too. Yeah, I enjoyed taking classes in both of those departments while I was there doing my graduate studies. Well, let's talk a little bit about the current environment that we find ourselves in, and particularly thinking about this from a historical perspective. Uh, because I think a, I've heard a lot of people talk about how this is an uncharted situation and, you know, we, we've never faced something like this before. And, and while that's true for those of us who are living, we've not lived through a pandemic like this. It, it's not true to say that our nation and even our religious institutions have not lived through this type of situation. And so we have the 1918 influenza pandemic. And, and perhaps we should perhaps set the stage a little bit about what that was. And, and I know it's more commonly called the, the Spanish flu. And maybe you, you can speak to this as well. You know, we, we try to avoid that. The WHO you know, now suggests that we don't use geographic or ethnic language, and as well as we now know that that's probably inaccurate. It didn't start in Spain. It probably started in Kansas. That's right. As Missourians, we will perhaps avoid calling it the Jayhawk flu or something, but, uh, you know, part of our border war there. So 1918, we have this, the influenza pandemic that at least at this point was worse than what we're seeing with coronavirus. Just uh, horrible and afflicting uh, people in the prime of life. Coronavirus can do that. And there's a false sense of security, I think, of some young people that they can't be harmed by it. But yeah, if you read accounts of the um, influenza in 1918, you know, people coming down within hours and uh, you know, very grotesque kinds of things uh, with blood. And it just sounds horrific when you read these accounts. It would come on very suddenly. And uh, there was tremendous fear that circulated about this. I was reading last night John Barry's The Great Influenza, which is the book that George W. Bush read a few years ago. Uh, and it so moved him that he gave a speech, I think, to the National Institutes of Health about how we need to be ready for a pandemic. And you're correct that uh, Haskell County, Kansas, is one of the places they think that it might have jumped to human beings. And then from Haskell County, Kansas, there were some soldiers who were coming home to visit, and then they went to Fort Riley, Kansas. There was a big camp there. And then from there to the European theater, World War I, uh, and then somehow it ends up in the Iberian Peninsula and gets blamed on the Spanish, but uh, that's probably not where it started. Yeah, and so Missouri is pretty close to Kansas, and I'm not sure how it spread to Missouri. And I'm not an epidemiologist, and I'm not an expert on the Spanish flu, but I was interested in how did this affect our religious institutions back in 1918? Yeah, let's get into that, because, you know, we are in an unusual time for us, and, you know, most churches are closed. I don't have to tell that to our listeners. They're, they're probably already listening to their, watching their sermons online. 
I've seen accounts suggesting that at least 93% of churches across the country have closed services, but this is not unprecedented. So this was happening, as you have been been pointing out, this is this was happening in 1918 as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's kind of eerie, some of the accounts that you hear from back then. You know, they have different names for things. I don't think they would have said social distancing. I'm not sure, but uh, I haven't seen that phrase. They talked about the influenza ban in Missouri, and it affected uh, public assembly and meeting together and things like that. So I was able to go and look through old newspaper accounts. One of the things that I use in my research and teaching is newspapers.com which is a subscription service, but you can look at newspapers from all over the United States that have been digitized and quickly discover that they're working through some of the same issues that we are are working through today. You know, should we stop meeting together? How are we going to uh, continue to have faith communities without being able to be in the same room as each other? Which I think is important to, to point out. I mean, we're meeting online for worship, a lot of churches, most churches. They didn't have that option. So when they decided to stop meeting for church, uh, they just they stopped having church yeah. for weeks or months on hand. And I think that's even a more remarkable, difficult situation than what we're, we're experiencing. Yeah, all they have is the home altar, as they called it. And I think that was fairly well established. Even in 19th century America, the idea of having family devotions, you know, there was a real Victorian emphasis on domesticity and religion in the home, and there were lots of devotional materials, books, pamphlets, and so forth that people used to kind of have piety in the home. But, you know, this is really before radio, so they can't gather around and listen to Charles Fuller or, uh, you know, Harry Emerson Fosdick, uh, depending on theological persuasion. They weren't on the radio at that time. They had to do it themselves. And so you read your publication, Word and Way, and they say, you know, we'd like to give you some friendly advice that every family should get together at 11 a.m. Sunday mornings and, and have uh, worship in your family unit. And so they encourage people to do that. But there was no Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so what I think I hear you saying, which I think is fascinating, I'm not sure I had thought of, is this idea that the, the lived religion at the time was was maybe in some ways more suited for a pandemic than our lived religion is, at least this idea of already being used to home worship and family devotion time. Is that kind of something you think maybe helped back then? Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly how widespread these practices were. You know, religion survey uh, work doesn't take off till later either. But we do know uh, there are scholars like uh, the historian Candy Gunther Brown at Indiana University who've looked at just the surge of devotional publishing that takes place in the 1800s from publishers that we would recognize today. You know, we have Harper today. I mean, Harper and Brothers was one of the earlier publishers, and and there were lots of them. I'm sure the Baptists had their own uh, home devotional materials. So, I mean, yeah. These are practices, which I'm not sure a lot of people do these kinds of home devotions, except maybe some evangelicals might. But even among evangelicals, I think it's probably less uh, prevalent than it once was. 
Yeah, and I love the fact you shared with me uh, yesterday some of these examples of Word and Way. I mentioned that we haven't lived through a pandemic, but Word and Way has lived through a pandemic that we'd started in 1896. And so dealing with these same questions and encouraging churches not to meet, even though that was a difficult decision. Uh, and, and you found this in some other newspapers, Baptists and others speaking out in what we might call more mainstream media about the importance of not meeting and even coming from elected officials. I wonder if you could share maybe you know a couple of other examples of what you have found. Yeah, so there are small towns that vote. Usually, uh, I think they're responding to Governor Gardner. Governor Frederick Gardner issued a proclamation. And this would have been in October of 1918. And the municipalities, several small towns, spring into action, and I'm sure others did as well. It's just these are the ones that happen to be in the newspaper index. And, you know, they pass these resolutions that call on saloons, churches, schools, and other uh, ways that people gathered together to shut down. And what's notable about the newspaper stories is there doesn't seem to be a lot of controversy in these stories. But, you know, usually the language is we're trying to do the right thing for people's health and, you know, stay home. And, uh, you know, I only looked at some towns, but there doesn't even seem to be a divided vote or things like that. Now, there is some controversy in St. Louis, but eventually the churches get on board. So Archbishop Glennon, who I, I guess later was Cardinal Glennon, very important figure in the Catholic history of St. Louis. You know, you have lots of things named after him. Originally, I think he was irritated that the health commissioner for St. Louis, a man named Max Starkloff, who I think if there was a Heroes of American Epidemiology Hall of Fame, Max Starkloff would be in it because, you know, we would say he flattened the curve in St. Louis. If you compare St. Louis to other cities like Philadelphia, where they had, uh, you know, massive parade in the middle of the epidemic and all kinds of people got sick, Starkloff shut things down. And uh, Glennon originally was not that excited about that, according to uh, one news report I just looked at, that this call for uh, shutting down churches raised the ire of Cardinal Glennon. I guess he wasn't a cardinal at the time. But later he said, you don't have your uh, mass obligation, Catholics of St. Louis. And I read other statements where he said, uh, there will be no masses in the city of St. Louis. Maybe uh, one or two people can come in for uh, devotions surrounding the Blessed Sacrament. That's fine, but we're not going to have uh, people congregating during this epidemic. And other churches responded that way, too. The other controversy was at the end of things, when there are people in St. Louis that wanted to lift the ban. And, you know, we're kind of talking about that right now, right? Uh, when should we open up the country? And so Starkloff said, no, I think... I don't think that's a good idea right now. You know, uh, he was sort of the Dr. Anthony Fauci of St. Louis at that time or something like that. And then the mayor was sort of saying, well, I think we should open things up. They did open things up at different times, and you see the cases surge. But in the middle of those debates, there's another politician who is identified as a Presbyterian, and he says, well, you know, uh, I think the saloons are probably more of a problem for this than the churches and so forth. So there's a kind of interesting kind of religious debate going on. But what's missing 
is this language about our rights are being taken away. You're infringing on our religious freedom. You're infringing on our religious liberty. Those discourses, so far as I've been able to find them, and again, I'm not an expert on this period, but I don't see that. The language from your publication was so polite and compliant and respectful of the public health people. They said our people desire to be helpful in every possible way. So, of course, we will respect the requests and suggestions of the health authorities. And they said, yeah, you know, we're shutting down our churches, but let's have worship in our homes. And it's touching to read the reports from the Baptist congregations that are in Word and Way, too, where, you know, they're kind of somber and sad, you know, that we haven't been able to meet. There have been a number of deaths here. And then there are other uh, articles that talk about, well, what's the meaning of all this? How can we find uh, meaning in our suffering? But there's not this kind of resentment against public health officials. More or less, I think they were willing to uh, comply. I wonder, as as you think about and study about religion, both in the past and, and, and watching it today, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that we have you know, among some churches, very defiant, you know, pastors that are defying the bans, that are getting arrested and saying, hey, I'm going to do it again, that are suing, that are claiming that the government doesn't have the right to do this. Why do you think that we might be seeing more of that today? What does that say about our religion? Yeah, I think there's a little bit more suspicion of government and also professional expertise. So, you know, you can see that in a number of spheres. You can see sometimes suspicion of public schools or suspicion of vaccination in the medical profession. And indeed, some of the anti-vaxxer rhetoric is coming out during this controversy, too, because there's talk of vaccines. And so I think there also are concerns, and these are, you know, real debates in religious communities that go back to the Affordable Care Act and uh, you know, the contraception mandate and things like that. And, you know, federal funding for procedures that some people might object to. So, I mean, I think that's going on. Now, if you go back 100 years, this is in the context of World War One, where the entire country has mobilized, where you have a religious leader, Woodrow Wilson, who's using overtly religious language to rally people. Sometimes language we might even find a little uh, overbearing. Uh, oh, yeah. it's. I mean, it's it's explicit. I mean, my name's Schmaltzbauer, so all this language about kill the Hun, you know, and things like that. I wonder how my great-grandfather, who uh, ran a saloon during World War One, you know, how he would have felt about that. I noticed there's an American flag behind him in the picture. So there's that going on. Now, there are some religious people who don't go along with that. It's not when it comes to public health and flu epidemic responses and staying home from church. It's the Mennonites over in Kansas who say, you know what? We've been pacifists for 400 years. We're not pacifists because it's a, it's a, a trendy thing to do. We're pacifists because Menno Simons, our founder of the Mennonites, who you know, is kind of part of the family tree of Baptists sort of too, said the, the regenerate do not go to war. And, uh, we are loving our neighbor by not going to war. Well, things didn't work out very well for the Mennonites over in the area of Kansas, where uh, they're predominant. Places like Gossel, Kansas, Newton, Kansas, Heston, Kansas. Uh, there are stories of mobs descending on Mennonites 
tarring and feathering them. Even a Mennonite who had to sing a patriotic song, like, and by the second verse, he could get the crowd to disperse. So that was bad. But yesterday, I found a story from, or maybe it was a couple days ago. It is actually in the uh, Wichita newspaper story about the 1918 flu epidemic, about the Alexander Vol Mennonite Church in Gosso, Kansas, stopped meeting because of the flu epidemic. They had no problem with that. They didn't think that was asking them to go against their core religious principles as Mennonites. They understood that was a public health safety issue. They didn't want to buy liberty bonds to support World War I, and they wouldn't have bought bonds for any war, because that's just what Mennonites and Amish are all about. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see. So it was a, it's a different time. I wonder if this would be different if we were coming right out of 9-11, and uh, somehow it was attached to that. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and of course, I also know from what I've read from that 1918 period that that war was also connected. You, you mentioned that people were thinking about, well, what does all this mean? You know, is God punishing us? And that was one of the arguments that, at least from some of the more pacifist side, that was that God is punishing us for our war as it was happening just as the war was coming to an end. And so, you know, we don't we don't have quite that direct correlation today. I know there are still people that are wondering, you know, is, you know, has God done this? What does this mean? beyond just some of the kind of government and health questions as well. Do you know who was saying that at that time? Uh, that, that's very interesting. Uh, was it more your social gospel type of uh, yeah, folk? Yeah, you're finding that, you, you find that in them, that they're, they're connecting the, the war that had you know, been going on what, in Europe for you know, four years at, at that point. And so connecting that, and, and particularly with it being tied to soldiers was a big part of how this had spread. If we had not been in a world war, Perhaps it would not have been a global pandemic. It would have been a more you know, localized issue. Uh, and so, of course, today it's more of a travelers and citizens and you know, commercialism that has helped spread this, this pandemic around the world. So that's a, quite a bit of a different situation. Although I did know, I, did, I was chuckling because one of the things you did say that did resonate with what I've been hearing today is the, the comparison of, well, if, if the saloons or the, the liquor stores are open, then, you know, churches should be too. We're still hearing a little bit of that rhetoric, particularly with some of the, the drive-in church argument in Louisville over the weekend about whether or not uh, drive-in churches should be allowed. And Al Mohler at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary made that connection of, well, if you can go to the, the drive-in, the drive-through liquor store, <laughs> then you should be able to have a drive-in church service. So we still, we're still making that connection between whether or not you can get your alcohol and whether or not you can go to church. So I, I found that comparison to be to be funny that we're still using that same kind of rhetoric. And I don't think that this uh, shelter-in-place period is a, a, a temperance moment for a lot of America. I think sales are probably going up, uh, and that, that can cause some serious issues for people, and others maybe not. But, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, other states, they are shutting down the, the liquor stores, if they're state liquor stores, and saying that's not an essential service. So, yeah, it depends on where you live. Well, one of the things that, that I've appreciated that you've done on social media, and maybe we'll kind of wrap up the conversation here, is is you've kind of pointed out some of these historical facts, not just to, to myself and others, but also to government officials like Governor Mike Parson. You've, you've addressed him on social media of saying, hey, look, here's what previous governor did. Here's what you know other churches were doing in 1918. Why can't you you know follow that that kind of example and precedent today? And so I think kind of the, the good closing question here is, I think sometimes one of the knocks on history and on historians is, you know, so what? You know, is, why does it matter what happened 
100 years ago, 500 years ago. And one of the things that I see that you're doing is helping us connect what was experienced in 1918 with some of the similar echoes that we're experiencing today. And so I wonder if you can kind of talk about that importance of of knowing our history and learning from that history. Yeah, I mean, my 11-year-old said, Dad, why are you so obsessed with 1918? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it gave me a certain amount of consolation that we made it through. Although not everybody made it through at great cost. It was really horrible. And I actually got into this because uh, I saw it in my own family. You know, one of my great-grandmother's sisters died in the flu epidemic of 1918, and that used to just be a notation, along with other horrible ways that people passed back then, you know, people being, uh, you know, in accidents and forestry and things like that. It was a tough time to live through, but to see that people did make it through. But then also, I think the so what question is that we can see how they made it through and how they made it through better some places than others. And I think you know everybody in Missouri should take pride in the fact that St. Louis was a leader in this. This remarkable family, the Starkloff family, I think we can take inspiration from. Max Starkloff was uh, in charge of public health for St. Louis, and he really insisted on responding early and strong to keep people home. And uh, it's interesting, that family um, continued to provide leadership in, in St. Louis. There's a Max Starkloff, a descendant of his, uh, a grandson who was a leader in the disability rights movement. Max Starkloff's sister was uh, one of the uh, creators of the Joy of Cooking cookbook, which we've all seen. So, I mean, I think we can take pride as Missourians that we're part of that story. I think in terms of uh, debates about faith, I I see things from, I don't think Governor Parson was making the argument that, you know, this is a terrible attack on religious liberty or things like that. I think he was just sort of saying small towns and rural areas might need a different approach than the big cities. And so, One of the things that I think is helpful looking at the history is that eventually it got to the small towns and rural areas and hit them really bad, also in Missouri. And, you know, it could happen this time, and we hope it doesn't. But I think he was just trying to figure things out. And so to chime in in these debates, you know, the faith community chimed in with petitions and things like that. I think they were just trying to say, look, we're faith leaders, and we think that you can go ahead and do this. And word and way, certainly. You and others, you know, you wrote a column for the Kansas City newspaper and things like that. I think it was helpful for that state debate about this. You know, don't be afraid that the faith community is not going to have your back on this. The faith community is standing up and saying this is important. Uh, There are such differences across the political spectrum in America. But even somebody like Franklin Graham, I heard an excerpt from uh, his uh, Central Park Easter message where he said we need to obey the authorities in terms of public health and things like that. So I I think that somebody like Governor Parson can feel confident in acting. But you can see that there are other politicians who are saying things, and some of them are from Missouri, that this is an unprecedented attack of big government, centralized government, that this is something that you'd uh, experienced in, you know, the former Soviet Union or something like that. And you go back 100 years and you say, no, it was here. And they didn't think it was unpatriotic. In fact, they they saw it just the opposite from you, that to be a good patriotic Missourian was to stay home, was to observe these what we now call social distancing measures. And I'm certainly way outside of my territory going back to the 18th century, but 
some people are appealing to the founding fathers, and that led me to do a little digging. I have a colleague, actually, who's an expert on smallpox inoculation and things like that among the Puritans, and I'm trying to encourage her to speak to this type of issue. She's finishing up a book on that period, Religion and Medicine, so we do cover that in our curriculum. But if you look at what Jefferson or Adams said about quarantines, they might not have been as sweeping as a stay-at-home order for New York City in 2020, but they felt like the power of the state to uh, you know, make people not move around if they were suspected of being infected, that that was legitimate, that that wasn't un-American, that that wasn't contrary to the spirit of 76. So I think our studying our history, you know, if tradition is the democracy of the dead, that, you know, looking at those people who had to make those hard decisions in the past, they were able to make those hard calls. And, and there's even evidence that places where they were a little more stringent with staying at home in 1918, that the economy did better later. You know, Seattle and places like that were pretty aggressive in responding to the flu epidemic, and they came out after uh, the epidemic was over stronger economically. Now, I'm not an economist either, so I'll leave it to those folks to argue about that. But I do know, as a historian of American religion, sociologist of American religion, that I, I guess I get some consolation that religious communities had to go through this before, that they were able to respond with kindness and with a sense of duty and responsibility and the common good, and that those things can help carry us through this time too. Excellent. I think that's just the perfect word to end on because I, I have found this historical connection to be very encouraging, that our, our churches have been through this before, perhaps you know, in some ways harder times when they didn't have the technology that allows us to connect, and they survived. And I'm, I'm encouraged to know that the, the publication that I serve was able to survive through this type of pandemic, perhaps even a worse pandemic at this point, and survived. And I think that's really encouraging for us to hear that this is not unprecedented, that this is not something that, that we've never been through before institutionally. We have. We've, we, we've survived. So I find that a very encouraging word from history, John. So thank you so much for, for being here and for sharing some of this research that you've been doing. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I've learned a lot from it. Well, I'll say what the people said in word and way in other places a hundred years ago, that I look forward to the time when we can meet in person again, or in this case, for the first time in person, when it's safe, and then we can sort of uh, celebrate when this goes away. But for now, uh, we can kind of hunker down and we can still have conversations like this. So I wish everybody out in your word and way podcast audience good wishes for uh, and blessings for getting through all this. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. If you want to learn more about John Schmulzbauer and follow some of his work, you can find him easily on Twitter at Ozarks Watcher. There he shares a bunch of information and also, of course, has a link to where you can find more about him and, and some of his books. As always, you can find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partners for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net, and ChurchNet at churchnet.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. And if you'd like to give the support this program, we greatly appreciate it. 
All you have to do at our website, wordandway.org, is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and our monthly magazine. And as I've mentioned before, if you're not a subscriber to that monthly magazine, I want to make it easy for you to try it out. Get one year for half off at tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.